Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. Guys, I don't know if y'all noticed it, man, but we have two amazing youth up here this morning, Miss Jill and Jack. Why don't we show them we love them? Hey, thank y'all, man. Y'all are crushing it, man. I'm so proud of y'all. Way to go, man. Awesome. Good job this morning, man. Thank you for serving us, man. Hey, listen, man, I don't know if you know this as well, but man, Rachel and I had some new family members come uh, into town. Uh, Rachel's dad and his wife are Bob and Sue, and they are here this morning, and I don't know, today, are they still here? Where you at, folks? I can't find, there you are. Hey, today is their 24th anniversary. Would y'all just tell them how much we love them? Thank y'all, man. We love y'all. And uh, man, they're great people. Um, and so, man, continue to get to know them, and uh, that would be awesome. I don't know, and I'm not making this political, so please don't think where I'm headed this morning. I just had to kind of get you into the conversation. But you know, during an election season, I don't know if you notice this, but there are millions and millions of people uh, that are voting, right? And, and so somebody uh, would say this, why should I vote? I mean, what difference can one vote make? I mean, I hear that a lot. Sometimes we simply underestimate the value or of the power of a difference one person can make. Would you agree with that? Uh, somebody said it like this, if you think that you're too small to make a difference, you've probably never been in a room with a mosquito. <laughs> right? I mean, just, just, just one little mosquito can ruin your night forever. Amen? I mean, them things, little, right? A man and his five-year-old son were driving past the cemetery and they noticed this large pile of dirt of a freshly dug grave. And the little boy turned to his dad. And he said, Daddy, Daddy, look, look, one got out. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine what would happen if one got out? I mean, just this thing, I mean, you're just driving by in the Grain Cemetery, man. And it just, I mean, a grave just had been upended and this dude who'd been dead for like 200 years is just walking around you would be like what I mean it would shake this town wouldn't it I mean we would all be upended I mean and after a while you know all the glitz and the glamour that you know kind of passes away somebody would begin to say this well so what I mean he got out of the grave but what what difference does that really have for me I mean, good for him, <laughs> but I mean, could that happen to me? I mean, would that happen to me? Do I even want that to happen to me? Um, beloved, I, you know this, and you kind of maybe know where I'm going this morning, but can I tell y'all a secret? <laughs> One did get out. <laughs> One did get out. I mean, he got out of the grave, amen, never to die again, and his name was what, church? And that's truly unbelievable. And, and we would all say, you know what, that, that's really cool. But here yet, I believe maybe is the big question this morning that we're going to try to answer. And that is, what difference does that really make then? I mean, what difference does it make? So what? This guy named Jesus got out of the grave. It would be just like if somebody got out of the grave in the Grange and a couple hundred years later, nobody really knew. Nobody, all the excitement, that kind of, what difference does it really make? 
You see, this is where Paul's at in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I invite you to turn there this morning. Paul's been teaching on the resurrection, and, and some may have been asking, well, Paul, that's great, but you're teaching on these resurrections. When's it all going to take place? When's mine going to take place? I mean, really, Paul, what difference did Jesus' resurrection really make to the people living in Corinth? Because again, you have to remember that Greek philosophy had dominated the church. They were there in, in Greece. They were there and, and Greek philosophy from Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and all those philosophers taught that, that the body was evil. The spirit was good. The body you were supposed to escape from it as quick as you could. Who would ever want to be put back in a body? This philosophy had dominated their thinking, and so then they began to say, Paul, is it really a good idea that we get another body? Paul, that, that's got to be evil. Well, Paul, what are you talking about? And remember, we talked about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If, if you'll kind of remember, he's kind of been dealing with this issue, and so Paul writes the greatest chapter on resurrection, but, but you have to know it's a bodily resurrection that he's talking about. And what's important to note is, is and you may not have really caught this at first glance, but this is two things are inextricably tied together. And that is the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of believers. You, you have to kind of get this. You'll remember his argument, it follows a very logical procedure. The first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15 remind them that they already received, believed in, and stood on, and were saved by the body of the resurrection of Jesus. So he's saying, you guys already believe that. And so he says there in verse 12, he says, now if Christ is preached that he's been raised from the dead, how does some of y'all say that there's no resurrection of the dead? One of the responses might be, well, we do believe, Paul, that Christ rose from the dead, but that really doesn't have anything to do with us. I mean, that was unique. That was a one-time deal. That was a, a one-time just shot. I mean, Christ rose from the dead, right? Amen. Physically, yep, we believe that. Literally, yep, we believe that. Bodily, yep, we got that, Paul, but it really just doesn't have anything to do with us. So then Paul writes verses 20 through 28, where we'll be this morning, to show the difference, the, the true difference that, that Jesus' resurrection personally makes to you and me this morning. And so we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, chapter uh, 15, verses 20 through 28. And this morning, I'm not going to make you stand for the reading of the Word of God, but I sure do want you to pay attention that this is God speaking. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 20, turn there with me. The Bible says this, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. <laughs> That's a great place for Wayne Tony to say amen. Thank you. Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are what? Like many of you may be right now. Wake up. One man said it this way. If you won't, if you won't sleep during my preaching, I won't come to your house and preach while you're sleeping. <laughs> anyway, all right. For since I'm... <laughs> that's free. We can take up another offering if you want to, but... 21, for since by a man came what church? By also a man also came the resurrection of the dead. So watch his logic here. For as in Adam all what? So also in Christ all will be made what? Amen. But each in his own, say it with me, order. Christ the first roots and after that those who are Christ at his coming. And then comes what church? Yeah. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power, for he must reign. 
until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy, praise God, that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. Now, listen, there are two things, two, two ways that, that, that Paul's going to teach us that the resurrection makes a difference in our lives. I do not have time to cover both of them today, but we're going to cover one. So come back next week for a second dose. Amen. Here's the deal, man. Because here's the first thing this morning, because Christ was resurrected, Christians will be resurrected. That's what he's saying. Because Christ was resurrected, Christians will be resurrected. You cannot separate the two. So verse 20, he says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Let's talk about that for a minute. Paul begins by telling them that Christ indeed has been raised from the dead, and as a result, Christians will be resurrected. And he uses three concepts to kind of explain his three word pictures in a way, if you would, to kind of explain this. The first one is this. He says, we have a unique picture that guarantees our resurrection. We have a unique picture that guarantees our resurrection because he says there, Christ is the first fruits of those who are asleep. Now, what are the first fruits? Well, Leviticus chapter three required that before the harvest could be made, you had to cut down the first fruits of the barley of the crop, and you had to bring it in a sheaf and present it to the priest to be offered before the Lord. Before the harvest of the rest of the crop, the first fruits are just a small token. Before that could be taken in, the first fruits had to be given. And one of the points Paul is making here is, is that just as the full harvest could never be made until the first fruits was given, so you and I will never be raised unless Christ was first raised. And at the resurrection of Christ, he comes, he comes out of the grave, and he offers himself to God as a first fruits. And then in that offering, he secures for us our resurrection. The first fruits is a picture of the coming harvest. The resurrection of Christ was a picture of the coming resurrection of believers. So let's go just a little bit deeper, though, with the picture that Paul is using. There's a sequence of events of the first fruits. Right. First of all, the lamb, the perfect lamb, the Passover lamb without spot or without blemish will be slain at Passover time. The lamb slain for the sins of the people representing atonement. The blood was shed and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So something had to die because the wages of sin is death. So symbolically, that lamb, that perfect spotless lamb would be slain and make atonement for the sins. Then the Sabbath of the lamb the Passover was slain, right? The day after that was the day after that Sabbath. Saturday was the Sabbath. The day after that would have been Sunday, which is our Sunday. That's when the first fruits would be offered. So that was a sign to signify that the entire harvest belonged to the Lord and the rest of the harvest was coming. In other words, pay attention to this. The Lord Jesus, as John the Baptist said, is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. The lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. That perfect, spotless, just pure, holy lamb was Jesus. And he would be slain on the Passover. Three days later, not, not, not on the Sabbath, but on the first day after that Sabbath, which is a Sunday, guess what the Lord Jesus Christ did? He rose from the dead and offered himself as the first fruits to God. 
declaring himself to be, be the son of God with power. And he waved, God waved him before the, the world. And here's what God was saying. God was saying, listen, here's what he was saying. Just because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, just as he rose from the dead, this requires, this requires our resurrection. It's not that he just kind of, it requires our resurrection. Because it is a first fruits. In other words, if the first fruits are really this good, the rest of the harvest is going to be that good too. Just as there's a harvest and we take the first fruits and present it to God, there's a harvest that follows. You can't have one without the other. Because Christ was resurrected, Christians will be resurrected. He was raised bodily, we will be raised bodily. But look at this more in detail later in the message today, but the reaping of the harvest also had three stages. It began with the first fruits, and then it went to the harvest, and then it went to the gleanings. And this is all what Revelation 20 calls the first resurrection, and Jesus called the resurrection to life in John chapter 5. The Lord raising from the dead was the first fruits. The people who are resurrected at the rapture are the harvest, and then the resurrection of the saved after the tribulation are the gleanings. So people say here, they say, well, see here, this is where the Bible contradicts itself. Christ was not the first person ever raised from the dead. No, no, that's not what it's saying here. It doesn't say that he is the first to ever rise from the dead. I mean, some people in the Old Testament rose from the dead. Elijah brought a boy back to life. Jesus himself in the New Testament raised three people that we know of, Jairus' daughter, the son of a widow, and Lazarus. But he's not the first out of the grave. He's the first fruit. What first fruits means, listen to me, what first fruits means is it is a guarantee of a future harvest. That's what first fruits are. Jesus is the guarantee that there's a future harvest coming. Jesus Christ was really the first fruits and that the resurrection was the only one where he was raised to glory to never die again. Anybody else that was ever raised from the dead eventually died again. Jesus is the only one that was ever raised and never died again. You say, well, what about Enoch and Elijah? They never died. They just took off one day. I mean, they just went walking with God and they walked right up into heaven. They never died. <clears throat> of those that died, only one has risen never to die again. And that's because he was the first fruits. He was a unique one whose resurrection was a resurrection of life that could never be killed. And that was passed on to the rest of the harvest. So when you and I are raised, we would never die again. So Christ had a unique resurrection. This is a picture Paul is saying. Well, I know somebody may be listening by way of radio or those on the internet, or maybe you're here paying attention, being a good Berean. You would say, well, Dr. Brown, here's what I have for you. What about Colossians 1.18, where it says that Christ is the firstborn from the dead? There's your contradiction right there. Paul and Colossians, nah, there you go. There's your contradiction. Well, well, well. That might be okay, but then you say, well, you know, if you don't believe me on Colossians 1.18, I got you with Revelation 1.5, where it says that he's the first begotten of the dead. Well, I'm not here to shame you, and I'm not here to embarrass you, but you probably ought to take a look at the Greek, because the word for the Greek is a word that means not at first in terms of one, two, or three. It means primary one. It means the best one. It means the greatest one. Christ is not the first person to rise from the dead. He's the best one that rose from the dead. Paul's not saying that he's, he's the first. He's saying that he is the guarantee that all those after him will be raised as well. When he says, look, Christ rose, and he is the first fruits or the guarantee of those, he says, who are asleep. Now, who are those who are sleeping? 
Now, this is not talking about soul sleep as, our, as, as the cult, and I'm going to call it that, of Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Your soul doesn't sleep once you die. That's not what this is talking about. And it's not talking about people who are taking a nap. <laughs> they just kind of died and they're sleeping. That, that's not what he's talking about. It's talking about death. It's talking about the body. They referred to death from the physical as sleep of the body. The soul went right to be with the Lord, right? The Bible clearly says to be absent from the Lord is, I mean, to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. We know that. Paul believed that. So, so he's saying here that the, that the Christian has been given a unique picture to show that this guarantees our resurrection. And then he says this. Secondly, he says we have an unchangeable principle that governs our resurrection. An unchangeable principle that governs our resurrection. You may ask and you may be thinking, so, so pastor, listen, are you saying that every person who ever slept in Jesus, every person who was ever saved in Jesus, who died, every physical body that was ever put in the grave that belonged to Jesus, that every single one of those people are going to come out of the grave just like Jesus did. That's exactly what I'm saying. So then how can the resurrection of one man have such an impact on other people? That's what the problem is. So Paul talks about this unchangeable principle. Look there in verse 21. He says this. He says, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Immediately upon reading that, there's a couple of things that I as a theologian need to make clear to you. One thing would be that we must be clear from this text that Jesus is fully man and fully God. It was the man Jesus who died, because if Jesus wasn't a man, he couldn't have died and been buried and been raised. But if he wasn't God, then his death, burial, and resurrection would have been inadequate to pay for the sins of the world. So Jesus has to be both divine and God to do what God says he did here. Another thing we need to make clear, very carefully we need to make clear, that, that the origin of sin can never be attributed to God. The origin of sin can never be attributed to God. Because look there, he says, for since by man came death. Did you see that? By means of, by, by agency of. In other words, it was by and through Adam's sin that man now dies. That's not on God. So then Paul lays out this unchanging principle and he helps us see that we're currently, right now, either in Adam or we're in Christ. If we're only born once, we're in Adam. And we have a sin nature. And we die because the wages of sin is death. But if we are born again through placing our faith in Christ, we come out of Adam and into Christ. And as a result, we shall live. So then, who was the one man whose act brought death on the human race? Paul doesn't answer that, but we know that from reading Genesis that it was Adam. Do you realize that one man doing one thing doomed us all? God created man, his name was Adam. God created Eve, and then God said to Adam and Eve, he says, hey, don't do that. Eve says, I think I'll do that. Adam said, well, you did it, I think I'll do it too. And they did it, and you know what happened? We're all doomed. The whole lot of us, the whole humanity that's right, we're all bound up in the seed of Adam. So when Adam sinned, we all fell into sin. When Adam died, we all died. Every one of us was born in the seed of Adam. Every one of us with humanity. Every one of us in humanness. Whoever came into this world, came into this world as a sinner by birth and by choice because we are like our father, Adam. 
And when he did his one thing, we all went right down the drain with him. And the sinful nature that we now have and the consequences of it have passed on to all mankind. Because one man did one thing, we all pay for it. You're saying that is so unfair. Hang with me. Now, the one act of one man at one time and one point in history affected every other being that ever lived. That's Paul's point. That's a principle. Now, if one man can do one thing and cause death to pass to all men, then why can't one man do another thing and bring life to all men? That's where Paul's going. It's not as bad as you think it is. Well, well, man, why did Adam, oh, Adam, he just doomed us all. Well, don't think about Adam. There's a new Adam, the last Adam. His name is Jesus, who fixes it all. You can't isolate the resurrection any more than you can isolate the act, the act of Adam. Paul's using an analogy he talks about in Romans chapter 5 later. He says, look, one man brought death, and no Jew would ever argue that. That's a very common belief. They believe as well as we believe that, that everybody is in the, the loins of our progenitor, Adam. We were all in Adam's loins. We don't have a problem with that. We don't believe in being guilty because of that. We're all sinners and, and the death principle because we've all sinned in Adam. We're all caught up in this thing. Nobody in this room would say that you have never sinned, right? I mean, apple trees beget other apple trees. Horses beget other horses. Guess what Adams beget? They beget other Adams. They beget other sinners. Sinners beget other sinners, friends. But verse 22, he says this, For as an Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now listen, I need to clarify some things here because looking at it textually, you may not see it in the English, but in the Greek, it's very prominently clear and you have to remember this. A.T. Robertson is as a Greek uh, theologian and I borrow this from him and it's so, so eye-opening. He calls what's happening here a frequentive or an iterative present. In other words, like there, it says this better translated, it would be this. It would be this, just as in Adam all continue to die. Right? That makes a difference on how you, you read that. But, but see, what you may not have noticed is it's also in the active voice, which means that the, the subject is doing the acting. In other words, death is a result of man's own doing. But then the other verb, so in Christ, will be made alive, that's passive. In other words, the subject doesn't have anything to do with bringing himself to life. Another person acted on that to bring that person to life. So we got ourselves into trouble and to blame, but God loved us so much, he got us out of our trouble and put it all on himself. That's crazy to me. We have to understand this. We have to constantly understand. So as an atom, all die. Let's talk about that theologically for a moment. Let me show you something that I think may, may help you understand really what's going on. When Adam and Eve sinned, and really what was happening, what they were passing along, and how it affected Adam and Eve. Some of us think Adam and Eve just sinned, and they could care less for what happened to the rest of the human race. I want to show you that it really mattered to them. I want to show you that they knew what they were doing. Because there are some things that God had made clear to them, and they were expecting it. So think about this theologically for a moment, if you will. As long as there was access to the tree of life in the garden, man didn't face the prospect of physically dying. That's one of the reasons God had to put the cherubim on there to keep them from getting into the garden because if they got back in and ate the tree of life, they would continue to live. So, so God said, no, I told you you were going to die. You're going to die physically because you can't get to the tree of life and you're dead spiritually because you can't get back to me. But think about this. In Genesis chapter 3, we have one perspective that's different than the perspective of Genesis chapter 2. 
The last part of Genesis chapter 2 states, and you can read this, that the man and woman were naked and unashamed. In Genesis 3, after they sinned, the Bible tells us that they were ashamed of their nakedness and attempted to cover their nakedness. Now, you guys know this. I need to, to, to point this out to you. They were not ashamed because they were naked. They weren't ashamed in the sense of the, the, the sexual union that they were experiencing. That's not where the shame came in. God, God has a high view of sex between couples. You just married couples. God, God married biological male and female couples. God takes great joy in that. So the shame is not because of something nasty that happened in the sexual act. That's, that's not what he's talking about here. But, but I borrow this from my, from my professor in seminary who first taught me this, and, and I'm going to show it to you. The first couple realized that they had passed the sentence of death upon all their prosperity through their sexual act. The very organs that they had used to perpetuate the human race, those became objects of shame to them because they knew that now every person that they ever gave birth to would die. They knew that their sinful disobedience would be passed on to every single one of their children. And their shame was in constantly reproducing both the sin and its consequences and namely death. So Adam and Eve, when they were ashamed, it wasn't just because they had sinned and it just affected them. They were ashamed and felt the weight of that because they knew that in every single child they would have and for the rest of the human race, they were all doomed to die. Can you imagine the weight of that? Being responsible for that? So then what exactly was passed on? Well, basically and simply put, we have a sinful nature that inclines us to sin. And now every human being follows in the footsteps of Adam and willfully sins against God. Thus man also faces the consequences of that sin. Just as we are in Adam, we all die. Therefore, listen to me. For a man to live, he now needs a new nature. The new nature can only come by having a new birth. Because if you're born into Adam, you die. So you have to be born again to live. And that's where the last Adam comes into place. His name is Jesus. Because as an Adam, we all die. But through the new birth in Christ, we all can live. I don't think anyone has a problem believing or agreeing that we all die. I don't think anybody struggles with that. You can't fight the fact that you're going to die. You can't deny the fact that you're going to die. I can take you to numerous cemeteries around the world, and there's proof that positive that, that men are dying. <laughs> I just read the obituary from the Lagrange paper, and the more people die. They're going to continue to die. So the unchanging principle is the same. As in Adam, all die, but as in Christ, all shall live. So why can't one man do one thing and cause people to live just as one man did one thing and caused people to die? But you see, it all depends on who that man is, Right? Adam stood in a very unique place in history, and so did Jesus. And Paul says, you can't say, you cannot say, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but I don't think it has any effect on my or anybody else's resurrection. I don't think the resurrection of Jesus really makes a difference. You cannot say that. No one can say that because it does. People get kind of crazy here in verse 22. I want you to look here because I'm teaching you how to defend your faith if you don't know what I'm doing. For as an Adam, all die. Did you hear that? Let me say it the way they would interpret it. For as in Adam, all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Do you hear that? So from that, they draw the conclusion that everybody is eventually going to be saved. Just as all when Adam died, all because of Christ are going to live. That There's going to be a new birth. There doesn't need to be anything. The Bible just says everybody's going to be saved. It's a parallel. How many died in Adam? 
All. Well, then how many are going to live in Christ? All. This drives people to believe in what is known as a theology of universalism. Universalism believes the idea that everybody's going to be saved eventually in the end. The key word here, though, is not the word all, it's the word in. Let me read it for you the proper way to interpret this. For as in Adam all die, and as in Christ all will be made alive. We put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. It's simply saying this. By, all, by one man all died, by one man all will be made alive. Now watch, it depends on the link with the man. So that's the point. So who died? All who were in Adam. Who will be made alive? All who are in Christ. Listen, by the natural descent of Adam, we all die. And we're all naturally descended from Adam, so we're all going to die. But those who are supernaturally born again and descended from Christ will live. That's his point. It's the all of who you're in. You're either all in Adam or you're all in Christ, and that determines every single thing. If you were still in Adam, you will die, but if you were in Christ, you will live. The first all includes all who were in Adam by the common factor of sin. The second all is the common factor of all who came through the common factor of salvation. All who are in Adam die, all who are in Christ live. So Paul gives this unchanging principle that governs our resurrection, but then lastly, we have an unbreakable promise that, that guides our resurrection. An unbreakable promise that guides our resurrection. And quickly, he says there in verse 23, he says, but each in his own what, church? Order. He says, Christ the firstfruits, and after that, those who are Christ, there's the, there's the modifier, not everybody, but those who are Christ, at his what? Coming. And he traces the difference the resurrection makes. He looks to the future promise about the harvest. Right, because he mentions this first fruits, which means there's a guarantee of a future harvest. The first fruits is Christ. The latter part of the harvest would be those who are in Christ. And here's the harvest, each man. Well, each man, of course, who is in Christ. Each man is the all of verse 22, and the all of those who are in Christ. So each man who is in Christ in his own order. The first fruits. Now here's very clear. The first fruits are Christ, and after that, those who are in Christ. Do you see it? It isn't everybody, again. It's only those who are in Christ. So first Christ, that's the first fruits, and after that, and so you have to understand in the Greek, when it says after that, it means there's going to be some time. After that, not, not immediately after that. It would use a different Greek word for that to mean immediately. It doesn't use that word. It says after that, meaning after some time. After that, an unresolved time gap, none of us know, even Jesus himself didn't know. But after this period of time, after the separation, then they who are Christ are going to, to be resurrected at his coming. So when Jesus rose from the dead as the first fruits, right? We've seen that. And when he rose out of the grave, he guaranteed that after a time gap, that those who are in Christ would also come out of the grave. And so when's that going to be? At his coming. And when Jesus comes, the word incidentally means uh, coming, it means coming beside of. That's the parousia. In Greek, it literally means presence. So at his presence, when he arrives to come beside us, when, when Jesus arrives, that's when our resurrection will take place. And so this is a double promise right here in God's word. One, Christ is coming back <laughs> at his coming. And then secondly, those who are in him are going to go with him. Praise God. There's coming a resurrection then, and that resurrection is tied to the resurrection of Christ as death is tied to the sin of Adam. 
The scripture generally talks about the resurrection of the just, the resurrection of life, a better resurrection, the resurrection from the dead, and all those terms in scripture, Paul calls, and later in Revelation, it's called the first resurrection. So watch this. There are only two resurrections mentioned in scripture. There's the first resurrection and the last resurrection, just like there's a first Adam and there's a last Adam. You need to follow this. The first resurrection is the resurrection of the just and the redeemed because they will be made alive in Christ. The second resurrection is for the unjust and the condemned because those are still in Adam and they all die. The first resurrection of the just, the second resurrection of the condemned. Paul says each in his own order. Again, this refers to a time gap in the order of things. So the first resurrection has an order made up of four parts that we see from the Scripture. So part one is the resurrection. Part one of this four-part thing is the resurrection of Christ. Part two is the resurrection of the church. The church will be resurrected at His coming. And scripturally, I believe that that means at the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 says this, but we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are what? Because that's what this, this text says here. It uses the same word, those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as indeed the rest of mankind who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, so also God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. For we say this to you by word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise when? First. Then we who are alive and who remain will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in there, and so we'll always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's a resurrection, folks. So you have the resurrection of Christ, and you have the resurrection of the church. Later on, right, there's a tribulation time. And during that tribulation time, there's judgment and slaughter and horrible kinds of things going on. And a lot of people die in that resurrection, don't they? In that tribulation, a lot of people are going to die during the tribulation. But did you know that people are going to come to Christ during the tribulation? People are going to, the, the witnesses are going to go out and people are going to come to Jesus during that tribulation. And guess what? At the end of the tribulation, there's going to be another resurrection. The Bible talks about that in Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 5. Then I saw thrones and they that sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. This is during the, the tribulation. Because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and because those not worship the beast or his image and did not receive the mark on their foreheads and on their hands, they came to life and they did what? They reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the 10,000 years were completed. This is the first resurrection. It says there was a resurrection of souls beheaded for the witness of Jesus and they were raised to life to reign with Christ. So then here's what you have. The resurrection of Christ, then the resurrection of the church, and then the resurrection of those after the tribulation. And here's what I believe, looking scripturally, then at that same time will be the resurrection of all the Old Testament saints. The Bible talks about this in Daniel 12 too. It says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but to others disgrace and everlasting contempt. You say this, I know maybe what you're saying. One is, is why can't you shorten this? And number two is this, why are you doing this? Well, let me tell you why I'm doing this, because my job is to be faithful to this text. Do you know that? Let me, let me show you what's happening here. The Bible says this, but each in his own, what does the word say? His order. If you don't know the order, 
I'm not helping you understand the text. We're going through this because it says every man in his own order. And that word means sequence. It's tagma in the Greek. It means sequence. It really had to do with military lines. There's a sequence to things. There's a sequence to the resurrection. First it was Christ, and then it's the church, and then it's the tribulation saints, along with the Old Testament saints. And that makes up the first resurrection because all those are in Christ. So Christ is already raised from the dead. That's phase one, right? We're good. Phase two is the rapture. We're all looking forward to that. Amen. We need to resurrect in this morning because obviously you've fallen asleep. We're looking forward to the, to the rapture, amen? amen? Doesn't matter when it happens, we're looking forward to it, amen? Amen, amen. I right, praise God, y'all are with me now. And then guess what? After, after that, there's going to be a tribulation and then God's going to raise up all those saints too, amen? Aren't you looking forward to hanging out with people who go through the, re- the tribulation? They're going to have some stories to tell. What about the Old Testament saints? Anybody want to meet some of those guys? Holy cow, I can't wait. But then check this out. There's one more, of course, and that's the second resurrection. Right? And that's the end of the kingdom because he talked about there's a millennial kingdom that fathers the tribulation. Because those saints are going to come back and reign for a thousand years, and at the end of that thousand years, there's another resurrection. And guess, guess who that's for? That's for all those who are in Adam. And that's a resurrection not to life. That's a resurrection to eternal punishment and death. That is a resurrection where you will forever be put in a physical body suited for eternal death. The Bible talks about it in John chapter 5, verse 29. Jesus said, And it will come out, and those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, and those who committed the bad deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Revelation 20, verse 5 and 13 says this, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. And that's the first resurrection. Then in verse 13, he says this, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to their deeds. Now listen, the Bible then says that the devil and all of his demons and all those who are in Adam will be cast into the lake of fire and forever they shall be. I don't say that with a smile on my face. I want you to know I say that with deep conviction in my heart that I would never want anybody to go there. See, because of Christ's resurrection church, please listen to me. Every single person in this room will be resurrected. You will either be resurrected to spend eternity with Jesus or you will be resurrected to spend eternity in hell. The resurrection of Christ makes all the difference. Just as God promised the Messiah would come, He came. And just as Christ promised His resurrection, He was raised. And just as Christ promises coming again, He will. And just as Christ has promised our resurrection, He will raise us up. It is an unbreakable promise. You can't stop it, and neither can I. Just as Christ was resurrected, Christians will be resurrected. That's Paul's first thing. And what a difference the resurrection makes, amen? Brother Nathan, would you come and those who will be playing with you? See, what we've learned this morning is that because Christ was resurrected, Christians will be resurrected. We have a picture that guarantees it. We have an unchangeable principle that governs it. And we have an unbreakable promise that guides us through how it's going to happen. 
But did you know something else that really makes a difference? I was reading, and you may have saw this at one point in your life, but I was reading through some things, and I found this old epitaph of a tombstone, and it had these words on it. It said this, Remember, friend, as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, soon you will be. Prepare for death and follow me. And somebody in handwriting wrote these words below that. To follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. (laughs) You're either in Christ or you're in Adam. And today, beloved, I beg you to be in Christ. I beg you. Maybe you're here in this church, and one of the reasons you just never really settled this issue is because you would say, man, people know that I've been saved, but, but I really know that I'm not, and I don't want to go through the embarrassment of that. My, my goodness, can I just challenge you? You're going to make an eternal decision because you're embarrassed of what we would think? But if you do not know for sure that you are in Christ, today is the day you can make that choice. I want you to have life. But Jesus wants it even more. See, he loves you. Something I was reminding our adult Bible study this morning is, listen, this might be news for you, but Jesus Christ still loves people who are in hell. Do you know that? That's not some vindictive king that just takes joy and and just sending people to hell. That's not who he is. God never stops loving people whether they're in heaven or hell, but it breaks his heart that they are in hell. God is not happy about that. That is not how he intended this. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would have eternal life is what the scripture says. It breaks God's heart to have to exercise discipline. But God says your sin will be punished one way or the other. You can pay for it or Christ can pay for it. And beloved, that's the decision we've all got to make. Will I receive the love of God for me that while I am a sinner, that Jesus Christ would die for me? And then he would give me life eternally that one day I'm going to be resurrected, given a a new body suited for heaven and spend eternity with him. This life is so short compared to what we've got. Amen. Nancy, one day, (laughs) there's no more cancer ever. One day. One day, brother, there's no more Parkinson's. Do you know that it's coming? One day. One day. My heart is hurting for some of you who are this close. And you don't know the joy that I know because you've let the church and other people just think you this is all about rules and behavior management. And it is not. We obey God because we love him. trying to be judgmental freaks just managing people's behavior and condemning people to hell that isn't our job to do to tell people about life I'd be more moral 
There's a lot of people in the world that are more moral than Christians. This isn't about behavior. This is about dead people coming to life. So are you in Christ this morning? That's my question to you. Because if you're not, Christ wants you to be in Him and and come out of Adam, come out of death in the kingdom of His marvelous light and life. Jesus said, I come that you may have life and have it abundantly. That's His promise to you. So I wonder if you'd rise to your feet and I'm going to pray and Justin and some others will be here. We'll receive you and pray with you. Lord God, today, would it be the day of salvation? Today, would it be the day that some step over the line? God, would you move in this place in your holiness and Holy Spirit consume us? Because before the throne of God, we have one perfect plea. And that's Jesus has paid it all. Bless us now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.